All right, this morning we're going to go back to Revelation chapter 19. We took a break last week for Mother's Day. Revelation chapter 19. And today we're hopefully going to finish this chapter. We've gone through the first part of the chapter over the last several weeks. And it focuses on the second coming of Christ, the whole chapter does, and the things that happen uh, when he comes back to earth at the end of the tribulation period. And there's this praise that breaks out from heaven at first. The marriage supper of the Lamb comes as he enters his millennial kingdom. And then we have in this section, the last part of this chapter, what we call the Battle of Armageddon. And that's what we're going to be talking about today. This battle takes place at the end of the tribulation as Christ comes back at his second coming. And these events in this chapter don't necessarily take place in order the way they're presented here. It's just kind of a composition or compilation of things that take place at the second coming of Christ. The marriage supper happens after the Battle of Armageddon, but here we have the Battle of Armageddon. Um, happening on earth. So we're looking at things in heaven, things on earth, then things in the millennial kingdom, all kind of put together in this uh, chapter. But here in this battle of Armageddon, um, probably everybody has heard that term. Maybe everybody doesn't know exactly what it is. So hopefully by the time you leave today, you will understand a little bit more about what this battle of Armageddon is. This right here, as we read in chapter 19, is not the beginning of Armageddon. It is one of the events that happens, or two of the events actually, that happen in the what I would call campaign of Armageddon. The beginning of that campaign started back in chapter 16, and I'm going to show you that in just a minute. But we have already gone through several events in the campaign of Armageddon. Here is the, the central focus of the battle is what we have here. And there's not a lot of detail, and there's a reason for about that. But let's read together the end of chapter 19, starting at verse 17, about the return of Christ and the, the battle of Armageddon here. So starting at verse 17, it says, And I saw an angel standing in the sun, and he cried with a loud voice, saying to all the fowls that fly in the midst of heaven, Come and gather yourselves together unto the supper of the great God that you may eat the flesh of kings and the flesh of captains and the flesh of mighty men and the flesh of horses and of them that sit on them and the flesh of all men, both free and bond, both small and great. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies gathered together to make war against him that sat on the horse and against his army. And the beast was taken and with him the false prophet that wrought miracles before him with which he deceived them that had received the mark of the beast and them that worshipped his image. These both were cast alive into the lake of fire burning with brimstone. And the remnant were slain with the sword of him that sat upon the horse, which sword proceeded out of his mouth, and all the fowls were filled with their flesh. Let's take a minute and pray, and then we will look at this passage more in depth. Lord, now we just come before your word, and we need your help in understanding. We need your help in applying these things. Lord, your word, all of it, has a purpose. You've given it to us for a reason. And so, Lord, I pray that you just guide us through this section today. Send your spirit to open our hearts and minds and give understanding where it's needed. 
And Lord, I pray that you would just help us even to see how this applies to us even today. But Lord, I need your help now as I speak. I pray that you would give me strength, fill me with your spirit, give me your words to say so that I might proclaim your word and not mine, and that we may be challenged with your truth. And we'll give you glory in everything, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, as I mentioned, we're looking specifically here at the Battle of Armageddon. It really isn't much of a battle, okay? The angel uh, start, it starts with this angel who's standing in the sun or in the sunlight, the direction of the sun, proclaiming or calling to all the birds of the world to come and feast on the flesh of all these soldiers who are going to be slain. It's not a pretty picture, but the battle is not going to be a pretty picture, okay? But to help us to understand this series of events at Christ's second coming. Let me go back a few chapters because I want to give you, there's actually eight uh, events that happen in what we would call the campaign of Armageddon because the beginning of this we've already studied and read about way back in chapter 16. Okay, so just to refresh your memory, let me go through that as the first stage of Armageddon, or the campaign of Armageddon, and then I'll show you from Scripture the events that lead up to this battle and then afterward, okay? So go back to chapter 16 if you want to read with me. We're going to read verses 12 through 16. This is in the sixth bowl judgment that we studied a while back, Revelation 16, 12 through 16. And the Bible says, The sixth angel poured out his bowl in the great river, the Euphrates, And its water was dried up so that the way would be prepared for the kings from the east. And I saw coming out of the mouth of the dragon and out of the mouth of the beast and out of the mouth of the false prophet three unclean spirits like frogs. For they are spirits of demons performing signs which go out to the kings of the whole world to gather for, to gather them together for the war of the great day of God the Almighty. And we just read about the great supper of God. This great day, or the war of the great day of God Almighty, is Armageddon. Verse 15, Behold, I am coming like a thief. This is Jesus talking. Blessed is the one who stays awake and keeps his clothes so that he will not walk about naked and men will not see his shame. Verse 16, They gathered them together to the place which in Hebrew is called Armageddon. So this is the first stage of Armageddon, way back in chapter 16, when the angel pours out the sixth vial And the Euphrates dries up and makes way for the kings of the east to join all of the other armies of the earth. So they're all gathering here at a place called Armageddon. Now, if you look in chapter 16, we have an unusual spelling. It's H-A-R and then a dash M-A-G-E-D-O-N. That is the, the Hebrew. Okay? And in Hebrew, that means mountain. That's what Har means. Mountain or Tel. It's like a mound. It means mountain or hill of Megiddo. Now, Megiddo is a real place. You can look up on the map in in Israel, north of Jerusalem, over toward the Mediterranean Sea, there is a place called Mount Megiddo. You can look at it on Google Maps if you want, even today. To the east of that mountain, there's a large valley called the Valley of Jezreel. And that's where this is referring to, that valley right next to the Mount Megiddo that still exists today. So this is the place from in in Revelation 16 that the armies of the earth will gather to make war against Jesus Christ at this battle. 
But this is the first stage, the calling of the armies and the gathering of the armies at this place. So the Valley of Jezreel, that valley next to the Mount Megiddo, is going to be the staging area. That's where the armies will gather. And all armies will gather there together. Now, some commentators believe that the gathering is not specifically for the purpose of making war against Christ. They say, well, they came to make war against each other. There's some armies fighting other armies. And then because of the event that happens in the beginning of chapter 19 with Christ returning, then they band together to fight Christ. I don't know if that's true or not. I I prefer to use chapter 19, verse 19, when it says, I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies assembled to make war against him who sat on the horse and against his army. So the Bible tells us why they're there. All right, so I'll have to take that as that's their intent. But I want to propose this scenario, scenario to you, okay? For many years, probably going back... 40, 50 years in our culture, especially in the United States, popular movies and literature have presented adventure stories, superhero stories, and I mean, you can even include some of the most recent, if you're familiar with the Avengers or Guardians of the Galaxy, okay? What is the theme in all of those? The theme is we have some kind of superhuman heroes on Earth that join together with mankind to fight off aliens that are coming from someplace in outer space to destroy us, right? I mean, how many times have you heard that theme or seen that theme in the entertainment industry, okay? It's, it's amazing how much that is prevalent in what we see in our culture. At the end of the tribulation, the world will know all the judgments and catastrophes that are, have happened through the tribulation are the judgment of God. Okay, we know that. The Bible tells us that. So they, it says they will curse God. They will blaspheme God because of all of this suffering they have to go through. So at this point, their arch enemy is Jesus Christ. He is the bad guy in their minds. And Satan, through the Antichrist, has convinced all the world that has followed him that Jesus is the bad guy. He is the, the criminal. He's the one that wants to take our world from us, that wants to take our life from us. Look at all of the stuff that he's poured out upon us. As the armies gather, and we've already had the destruction and fall of Babylon, we've had all of these judgments that have come upon the world, and so these armies are gathering, and as they gather, from outer space comes this alien being robed in white and glowing, riding on a white horse, followed by an army. Sounds like a movie script. But this is the reality of Jesus Christ's second coming. And all of those armies and all of the people on earth will see Jesus coming. He's the bad guy. And so we're all going to join together to fight the aliens. Now, I really believe that after the rapture, the big excuse, reason, whatever you want to call it, that they're going to give for the rapture is that aliens abducted millions of people. And when Jesus comes back, there's the alien. Now, that has already been ingrained into our minds because of the culture that we live in. And so it's not going to be very hard for people to fall to that lie in the tribulation period and say, oh, look, the Antichrist, he's such a good guy. He's trying to bring peace. He's trying to unite the world. 
Isn't that the goal of everyone in the world today, to world peace? And so the Antichrist will be looked at as the Savior, while Jesus Christ will be looked at as an alien invader, literally. Okay? And so that sets the stage for what we see here in the Battle of Armageddon. But it's the, the armies are all gathering together to fight Jesus. Okay? Now, God's view of this is expressed in, in Psalm chapter 2. In Psalm 2, we have what we call a messianic prophecy of Jesus' coming, of his second coming, but it focuses on the nations of the world at that time. And in Psalm 2, it says, Why do the heathen rage and the people imagine a vain thing? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us break their bands asunder and cast away their cords from us. Sounds familiar. That's Revelation. But this is Psalm chapter 2, or Psalm 2. Okay, verse, five, verse 4 says, He that sitteth in the heavens shall laugh. He shall have them in derision. See, the thought that the strength of mankind, no matter how many people band together, no matter how many superhuman heroes that we can accumulate, no matter what technology we can use to create massive warfare, the thought that that can defeat the God of heaven... God will laugh at that. Because when you realize who you're talking about, when you talk about the Lord Jesus Christ, there's no strength, there's no power on earth that could stand up before him. And we're going to see that in the battle. But we have these armies gathering. That's stage one. These armies gathering, uh, the troops gathering in the valley of Jezreel near Mount Megiddo. So that's in chapter 16 of Revelation. Here's stage two, and we've read this already in chapter 17 and 18 of Revelation, the destruction of Babylon. Okay, first, the destruction of the religious system that happens about halfway through the tribulation when that, when the, the whole false religion, the apostate church, all of that comes crashing down as the Antichrist lifts himself up as God and demands everyone worship him. So the religious system falls apart. And then in chapter 18, literally the headquarters of the Antichrist, the city of Babylon, and its power is destroyed. And that's near the end of the tribulation. And we went through that as we went through chapter 18. And we said Isaiah chapter 13 and 14 and Jeremiah 50 and 51 give us a very detailed account of that destruction, which cannot have happened according to those descriptions yet, but which will happen at the end of the tribulation period. The interesting thing is the Antichrist will not be in the city when Babylon is destroyed. And you may ask, why not? Because he's gathered in Armageddon with his armies. That's why not. And so Jeremiah 51.31 says, One post shall run to meet another, one messenger to meet another, to show the king of Babylon that his city is taken. So we have kind of a, what we call a short-term and long-term prophecy here in Jeremiah 51. Because it predicts, in essence, the fall of Babylon to the Persians as the Persians came in under the city wall after diverting the river Euphrates, and we just read that the Euphrates River is going to be dried up in the end times to make way for the kings of the east. So there's a similarity there. It's not the same thing. It's two different fulfillments of that prophecy. But Babylon was conquered the first time by the Persians. They came in in the middle of the night under the wall, 
Belshazzar, remember, that was the handwriting on the wall evening where he was having his party and the Lord's hand appeared and wrote on the wall, your kingdom has been measured and found wanting. And Belshazzar didn't even realize at that moment that his city was already being taken by the Persians. And so it wasn't until later as they moved farther and farther into the center of the city toward the palace that he realized we've lost and then he was killed. But the city basically gave up without a fight. That was the first fulfillment. The long-term fulfillment is the second coming of Christ. Because the Antichrist won't be in Babylon when it's destroyed. He will be with his armies at Armageddon. And I'll show you that as well in just a couple of minutes. So we have this second stage, which is the destruction of Babylon. The second stage of what we call the campaign of Armageddon. The third stage is the fall of Jerusalem or the attack against Jerusalem by these armies that are gathered. So the armies of the Antichrist, when they gather at Armageddon, will first come against Jerusalem. That's their target. They don't like Jews. Remember, the Jews are anathema to them. They want to extinguish them from the earth and any Christians that happen to be associated with them as well. In Micah chapter 4, verse 11 and 12, it says, Now also many nations are gathered against thee, this is talking about Jerusalem, that say, Let her be defiled, and let our eye look upon Zion. But they know not the thoughts of the Lord, neither understand they his counsel, for he shall gather them as the sheaves unto the floor. So they come against Jerusalem first. Zechariah chapter 12, verse 2 says, Behold, I will make Jerusalem a cup of trembling unto all the people round about, and then they shall be in siege, and they shall be in siege both against Judah and against Jerusalem. Now, Jesus predicted the fall of Jerusalem um, in Luke chapter 21, but that was the fall that would happen in 70 AD when Rome came in and conquered, destroyed the temple. Remember, they moved each stone from the temple so that one did not remain upon another. Okay, so that was his prediction in Luke chapter 21. But in Matthew 24, Jesus is looking forward to this destruction of Jerusalem at the end times in the, the tribulation. And in Matthew chapter 24, verses 15 through 21, Jesus says this, When ye therefore shall see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet, stand in the holy place, whoso readeth, let him understand, then let them which be in Judea flee into the mountains. That phrase is important. We're going to look at that in just a second. But Jesus says, when you see this happen, flee into the mountains. Let them which is on the housetop not come down to take anything out of his house. Neither let him which is in the field return back to take his clothes. Woe to them that were with child and to them that give suck in those days. But pray that your flight be not in winter, neither on the Sabbath day. For then shall be great tribulation, such was as not since the beginning of the world to this time, no, nor ever shall be. So Jesus is talking about this fall of Jerusalem here at the end of the tribulation period. And he says, when you see the desolation in the temple, get out. Now we know at the midpoint of the tribulation period, the Antichrist will set up an idol and cause all people in the world to worship him and this idol. And the false prophet will make the idol seem to come alive and speak and is able to kill people who don't worship it. And so Jesus says, when you see that, get out of the city. So there will be a whole group of people who will heed Jesus' advice at the end of the tribulation, or not, not at the end, at the middle of the tribulation, when this abomination of desolation is set up in the temple, and they will leave and they will flee to the mountains. But there will be many who do not, and they stay in the city. And three and a half years later, 
they will be in the middle of this attack by the, the armies of the Antichrist. So Jesus said, get out as these armies come again, before the armies come against the city. Zechariah says, for I will, uh, chapter 14, verse 2, For I will gather all nations against Jerusalem to battle. The city shall be taken, the houses rifled, the women ravished. Half of the city shall go forth into captivity, and the residue of the people shall not be cut off from the city. So Zechariah's prophecy about this same event tells us that when they come upon Jerusalem, half the people are going to be taken as slaves. But God is going to protect many of them. Okay, And this is the amazing part of God's hand and God's power and intervention in this event specifically because Zechariah 14 says half the people are going to be taken in captivity, but the residue of the people shall not be cut off. If you go back to Zechariah 12, there's another prophecy that says, In that day shall the Lord defend the inhabitants of Jerusalem. He that is feeble among them at that day shall be as David, and the house of David shall be as God, and the angel of the Lord before them. So God literally will empower many of the people who stay in the city to protect themselves. And they will stay alive, even in the midst of this destructive siege that they bring against Jerusalem. So here's the third stage, is the attack and the fall of Jerusalem. But not all people will be killed who are still in the city or, or, or taken captive. Okay, so that's stage three. Stage four is the armies then move from Jerusalem down to Basra. Now we've talked about Basra or Petra several times. Petra is that place of refuge, I believe, that God has prepared for his remnant that Revelation 12 talks about. Okay, that they will go there, and God will protect them, and God will feed them for three and a half years. But the armies of the Antichrist will know that that remnant is hiding there, and so they will go after them. From Jerusalem, they will send armies down the valley toward Petra, which is in southern Jordan, to kill all of these Jews who are now protected by God. Jeremiah chapter 49, verses 13 and 14 The Lord says, For I have sworn myself, declares the Lord, that Basra will become an object of horror, a reproach, a ruin, and a curse, and all its cries will become perpetual ruins. Now, God declared through Jeremiah, way back, even before Babylon conquered Jerusalem, that Basra would become a ruins, a desolate place. That was his preparation. He basically emptied that area of all the inhabitants and left it barren. Actually, it is a tourist attraction today. Nobody lives in Basra. It's this great city with buildings and and cathedrals and houses carved out of the side of the mountain. The only way to get into it is a very narrow canyon that is about three-quarters of a mile long. At some places, you can only put two or three people wide. And so it's a very restricted entrance to this protected city. In olden days, it was a very prosperous trade center because it was in the middle of a trade route. But in the Roman Empire, after the Roman Empire conquered the area, they tried to revive it, but basically it was just used as a fortress for supply storage, and then eventually it was abandoned altogether. And so it sat vacant for many years until the late 1800s when a, uh, I think it was a Swiss tourist disguised himself as one of the locals and went hiking out there and discovered it. 
but now it's a tourist attraction. So that's what God is talking about, that place in southern Jordan called Petra. You can look it up online, okay? And God will protect his people there. And uh, Jeremiah 49 goes on in verse 14, I have heard the message from the Lord, and an envoy is sent among the nations, saying, Gather yourselves together and come up against her, against Basra. And rise up for battle. So God is literally calling the armies together to battle against Basra or Petra, where those protected Jews are. But in Revelation 12, we've already studied this. We read this. When the dragon saw that he was cast to the earth, he persecuted the woman, that's Israel, which brought forth the man-child. And to the woman were given two wings of a great eagle that she might fly into the wilderness into her place where she is nourished for a time and times and half a time from the face of the serpent. They're protected there. And the serpent cast out of his mouth water as a flood after the woman that he might cause her to be carried away of the flood. That is figurative language for a great army coming up to destroy them from the Antichrist. But verse 16 says, And the earth helped the woman, and the earth opened her mouth and swallowed up the flood which the dragon cast out of his mouth. So as the armies of Antichrist approach Petra, where this remnant is secured by God, God will literally open the earth up and swallow the armies that are coming to kill them. And so his protection will continue for those people there. That is where Jesus told them, to flee into the mountains. And when he said the mountains, they understood that it was these mountains in southern Jordan where this safe place was. Okay, the people that didn't listen, they're stuck in Jerusalem when the armies come. People who did, they're safe, and God's protection is there. So all those in Petra will be safe. That's the fourth stage of of, uh, Armageddon. Then we come to the fifth stage, and I want you to put yourselves in the remnant place, the remnant of Israel, as they're secured in Petra. Now, remember, they go there. They know that God has promised to protect them, but now they know these armies are coming against them. If you were not just secured, but stuck and cornered in a place like this, and you knew a great army was coming after you, what would your response be? Fear. And that's what the response of the remnant is. But it's not just fear. It's actually a national repentance. And I believe this is the occasion when all Israel will be saved, as Romans 11 says, that they will turn to God. Let me read Hosea chapter 5, verse 15. It says, I will go and return to my place. This is prophetic of Jesus Christ, leaving earth, I will go and return to my place until they acknowledge their offense and seek my face, and in their afflictions they will seek me early. That's prophecy of the Israelites or the Jews who are in Petra calling out to God for help. But not specifically God, but recognizing Jesus Christ as the Messiah at this point. Let me go on in Hosea in chapter 6, verses 1 through 3, says there'll be three days of repentance and pleading at this point. And here's their words, come, let us return to the Lord, for he has torn us, but he will heal us. He has wounded us, but he will bandage us. He will revive us after two days. He will raise us up on the third day that we may live before him. This is Israel repenting before God at this moment. 
So let us know, let us press on to know the Lord. His going forth is as certain as the dawn. He will come to us like the rain, like the spring rain watering the earth. Now you go, well, that's not real specific. Okay, let me get more specific. Zechariah chapter 12, verse 10. I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and supplication so that they will look on me whom they have pierced. That is prophetic of the Jews recognizing Jesus as the Messiah at the end of the tribulation. And it says, and they will mourn for him. As one mourns for an only son, they will weep bitterly over him like the bitter weeping over a firstborn. Now, all of this echoes Isaiah 53. You may recognize Isaiah 53. It's probably a very popular passage of Scripture that most Christians at least know a little bit about. But Isaiah 53 really is nothing but the echo of Israel's repentance at this time when they want Jesus to come and save them. Now, think about what I'm going to read from Isaiah 53 in the context of these Jews who think they're about to be destroyed by the armies of the Antichrist. And they realize Jesus is their only hope. He is despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of of our peace was upon him. With his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. That is the cry of repentance of Jews at this moment in the end time, as they repent and recognize Jesus as the true Messiah. Now, they rejected him, and they have rejected him all through the last 2,000 years of history as a nation, basically, and especially the leadership. But whoever is left at this moment When Jesus returns, they will turn to Jesus Christ and recognize him as the Messiah. And Paul confirms this in Romans chapter 11. It says, For I do not want you, brethren, to be uninformed of this mystery, so that you will not be wise in your estimation, that a partial hardening has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. The fullness of the Gentiles is talking about the time period that started about 586 or so when Nebuchadnezzar conquered Jerusalem. And since then, Israel and Jerusalem have not fully been under the control of Israel until the the, the millennial kingdom. Okay, So the time of the Gentiles is from that moment all the way to the end of the tribulation. And Paul's saying... A partial hardening has happened to Israel until that happens. Now, at that moment, at the end of the tribulation, when Jesus returns, verse 26, all Israel will be saved, Paul says. As it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will remove ungodliness from Jacob. This is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. So this is the next stage, the fifth stage of Armageddon, is that Israel will have a national repentance, and all Israel who are left, the remnant, will be saved at that moment. Literally and physically by Christ returning, but spiritually because they finally turned to the Lord. Stage six is what we see here in chapter 19. Okay? This is the second coming of Christ. 
And Christ comes in response to the pleading of Israel for repentance. That's why he comes. So the second coming is all based here on the the national repentance of Israel. In Matthew chapter 23, he alludes to this. And Jesus said, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who kills the prophets and and stones those who are sent to her? How often I wanted to gather your children together. Away a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, and you were unwilling. Behold, your house is being left to you desolate. For I say to you, from now on, you will not see me until you say, blessed is he that comes in the name of the Lord. That's Jesus' prophetic statement about his second coming when Israel turns back to him. As we already saw in the beginning of Revelation 19, Christ will come ready for battle. And he's going to come with all of his heavenly armies behind him. He doesn't need the armies, but they come with him. Okay, Probably all the angels, all saints, all the Old Testament saints are all going to come. And the text that we read this morning tells of the battle. Now, in 17 and 18, we have the announcement by the angel to call all the birds to eat the flesh of those who are going to die, kind of proclaiming victory before the battle even happens, okay? But in essence, the angel is basically saying there's going to be a lot of dead people here, birds, and specifically the vultures. So if you want the feast, the great supper of God, as he calls it, be at this place, Now, it's interesting, as I was studying, I came across an article that talks about how Israel itself, and specifically the Valley of Jezreel, is like a center place or right in the middle of a migratory path of millions of birds that go over there every single year. Now, I don't know if that has anything to do with this, but I don't know if it's just a coincidence. Okay, And it may be that God uses this migratory path And many of these birds are what we call birds of prey. And they will be there to clean up after the battle. So that's the first part. But in verse 19 in Revelation 19, John says, I saw the beast, the kings of the earth, and the armies assembled to make war against him who sat on the horse and against his army. We read about Jesus coming in a horse at the beginning of this chapter. In verse 20, here's the battle. The beast was seized with him, the false prophet, who performed the signs in his presence. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire which burns with brimstone, and the rest were killed with the sword which came from the mouth of him who sat on the horse. And all the birds were filled with their flesh. There's the battle. That's it. It's uh, two verses. It's not going to be a battle. It's going to be a massacre. Because people of the earth are not going to be able to fight. They don't have anybody to fight. All they're going to be trying to do is defend themselves. And the Bible tells us, that with the sword that comes out of Jesus' mouth, with the word spoken from his mouth, Jesus will kill them all. But if you want to defeat and demoralize an army, you remove the leaders. Take out the generals. And that's why the Bible tells us the first thing that happens is the beast, that's the Antichrist, and the false prophet are seized, literally plucked up, and cast into the lake of fire alive. Now, this is the first time that we are introduced to the lake of fire. And I'll talk about that in a second. But their leaders are plucked up and cast into the lake of fire alive. Now, somewhere during that transition, they will receive their 
eternal bodies, which will not be destroyed by the fire of the lake of fire, but they are now the first inhabitants of this lake of fire prepared for Satan and his angels. And then Christ goes from Basra to Jerusalem and destroys all the enemies of God. Now, we've already saw that the angel calls the birds for this great feast, and then the end of verse 21, all the, all the birds were filled with their flesh. So here in chapter 19, the angel's declaring that Christ will be victorious, even though the battle hasn't happened yet, and then the verses that, that follow that, we see the battle doesn't last very long. Okay, It may be a matter of minutes in which all of this happens. We don't know. But here we are told that the leaders, the beast and the false prophet, are cast into the lake of fire. So this is the sixth stage, the actual battle, which isn't much of a battle. And Christ disposes of the Antichrist and the false prophet from the earth. The seventh stage is Christ's path of destruction. Now, Christ will not come specifically to Jerusalem when he comes down. And that, that's a controversial statement, Okay. Because I know many people say, oh, no, he comes and he stands on the Mount of Olives. He does. But let me read you some other verses, okay? Christ descends to earth. He will come down at Petra or Basra, where this secure place is. And then he will proceed north up the valley to Jerusalem, killing as he goes. Jeremiah chapter 49, verse 22. Behold, he shall come up and fly as an eagle and spread his wings over Basra, and at that day shall the heart of many, mighty men of Edom be as the heart of a woman in her pangs. So he comes to Basra. In Isaiah 34, 1 through 6, Come near, ye nations, to hear, and hearken, ye people. Let the earth hear and all that is therein, the world and all things that come forth of it. For the indignation of the Lord is upon all nations, his fury upon all their armies, and he hath utterly destroyed them. He hath delivered them to slaughter. That's this, this battle. Verse 3, their slain shall be cast out, their stink shall come up out of their carcasses, the mountains shall be melted with their blood, and all the host of heaven shall be dissolved, and the heavens shall be rolled together as a scroll. Their host shall fall down as the leaf falleth off from the vine, and as a a falling fig from the fig tree. That's referring to all of these judgments that God has given through the the seals and the bowl judgments um, that we've studied already. Verse 5 says, My sword shall be bathed in heaven. Behold, it shall come down upon Idumea. Idumea is actually the area that is south of Jerusalem that you go through if you were going from Jerusalem down to Petra. And so it says, My sword shall be bathed in heaven. Behold, it shall come down upon Idumea, upon the people of my curse to judgment. The sword of the Lord is filled with blood. It is made fat with fatness, with the blood of lambs and goats, with the fat of kidneys and rams. For the Lord hath a sacrifice in Basra and a great slaughter in the land of Idumea. Isaiah 63, who is this who comes from Edom? That's where Basra is. With garments of glowing colors from Basra, coming from Basra. The passage says, This one who is majestic in his apparel, marching in the greatness of his strength, it is I who speaks in righteousness, mighty to save. Why is your apparel red and your garments like the one who treads in the winepress? And Jesus answered in verse 3, I have trodden the wine trough alone from the peoples 
There was no man with me. I also trod them in my anger and trampled them in my wrath, and their lifeblood is sprinkled in my garments, and I stained all of my raiment. For the day of vengeance was in my heart, and my year of redemption has come. The year of redemption is the national redemption of Israel. Zechariah chapter 12. The Lord also will save the tents of Judah first. Um, Let me read the rest. So that the glory of the house of David and the glory of the inhabitants of Jerusalem will not be magnified above Judah. The tents of Judah refer to those people who are not living in the city but are in the outlying areas living in other places. And so the reference there in Zechariah 12 is that the Lord will come and he will destroy the armies that are coming against the people outside of Jerusalem. And we've already seen that he starts at Basra. And then he makes his way up the valley all the way to Megiddo, trampling the armies, and then goes to Jerusalem last. Christ will start by delivering all those outside of the city of Jerusalem and then make his way to Jerusalem. Verse 14, verse 20, I'm sorry, Revelation chapter 14, verse 20. The winepress was trodden outside the city, and blood came out from the winepress up to the horses' bridles for a distance of 200 miles or 1,600 furlongs. Now, here's an exercise for you. Go on Google Maps, find Mount Megiddo, then find Petra, and find the distance between the two. 200 miles, 1,600 furlongs. God doesn't make mistakes, and he doesn't give estimations. That's an exact measurement. So Christ will come to Basra in response to the pleading of Israel in repentance. And he will go from Petra or Basra up the valley all the way up to Megiddo where the staging place is so that there will be no armies left. Even the reserves who are waiting in the wings will be destroyed and then Christ will go to Jerusalem. So that's the seventh stage of Christ trampling the earth. Now the eighth stage is his victory ascent up the Mount of Olives. As he goes to Jerusalem, he will go to the Mount of Olives. And as he stands on the Mount of Olives, it will split in two. Zechariah chapter 14. Then the Lord will go forth and fight against these nations as when he fights a day of battle. In that day, his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, which is in front of Jerusalem on the east. And on the Mount of Olives will be, and the Mount of Olives will be split in its middle from east to west by a very large valley so that half of the mountain will move toward the north and the other half toward the south. And then he says, you will flee by the valley of my mountains. Remember, there's people still in Jerusalem. You will flee by the valley of my mountains, for the valley of the mountains will reach to Azeel. Yes, you will flee just as you fled before the earthquakes in the days of Uzziah, the king of Judah. Then the Lord my God will come and all the holy ones with him. So he will destroy all the armies of the Antichrist. He will save not just the remnant that's in Petra, but the remnant that's still in Jerusalem create a valley on the, between, right down the middle of the Mount of Olives for them to flee the city out of. And the battle is over. And Christ is victorious. Now, I know you probably didn't expect to get all of that from Revelation 19, but all of that is attached to Revelation chapter 19. Okay, because it's this series of events that leads up to the second coming of Christ. And we need to understand the second coming of Christ and why he comes, because the tribulation period is God's direct intervention and working with Israel again. 
The times of the Gentiles are, is the pause button, if you will. From the time Christ died on the cross and was resurrected till the end of the, till the, the, the uh, rapture, that's what we call the church age, okay? Or from Pentecost, basically. But that's the church age, and God's focus is on the church and using the church to bring the light of the gospel to the world. The rest of history is about the Jews. The Old Testament, it's all about the Jews. The tribulation period, it's all about the Jews. Jesus wept because the Jews rejected him. The Jews were looking forward to the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of of Christ on earth. That's the highlight for them. So in the tribulation, God refocuses his attention on Israel, and at the end of the tribulation, all Israel will be saved, and that's when Jesus Christ returns to deliver them physically. And then the events that we just read in Revelation 19 and these other prophecies will happen. Now, that's the end of the tribulation. I mean, that is the last event that happens in the tribulation. After this, we have the millennial kingdom of Christ. The enemies of God are gone. There's one more event that does have to take place, and we'll read about that in chapter 20. There's still people who are wicked on the earth. They weren't part of the armies, but they were still alive, who worshiped the beast. What happens to them? Well, they're judged, okay? But we'll get to that as we get into chapter 20. So here, at the end of the tribulation, we have this absolute victory by Jesus Christ in what most people call the Battle of Armageddon. I will call it a massacre, okay? It's not a battle. It's a massacre. But all of these other events lead right up to it and are part of this. Now, one more comment before we close about the Antichrist and the false prophet. I said this is the first time that we're introduced to the lake of fire. All through the Bible, you have references, especially in Jesus' teaching of hell. Okay, The word in, in uh, the, the language of the Jews is Hades. It means a place of the dead. Up until this point... No one is in what we would call eternal punishment in the lake of fire, okay? When unsaved people die, when in our minds we think, well, they die, they go to hell. That's true. But they go to what is considered a holding place, and Jesus referred to this in his teachings. At the end of the tribulation, when all people are judged, and then at the end of the millennium, I'm sorry, when all the people are judged, they will be taken out of this place of the dead, Hades or hell, and they will all be cast into the lake of fire that is reserved for Satan and his angels. That's why it was created, but not until the great white throne judgment, okay? And that happens at the end of millennial kingdom. So we get a picture here of the lake of fire. It's introduced for the first time here as we talk about this battle of Armageddon. The beast and the, the, the Antichrist and the false prophet are the first inhabitants of that place. Now, One more note, this completely demolishes the theory of what we call annihilationism, that when somebody dies and goes to hell, that their body is burned up and then they just cease to exist. Because the beast and the false prophet will be in the lake of fire for a thousand years by themselves. And they will still be there when all other sinners and Satan and his angels are cast there at the end of the kingdom. Okay, So there's a lot of little things built into this passage about the uh, Battle of Armageddon here, or the Campaign of Armageddon. And I'm going to stop with this. 
Many people will confuse the Battle of Armageddon with Gog and Magog that you read about in chapter 20. We'll talk about that when we get to chapter 20. But in Ezekiel chapter 38 and 39, there's an extensive description of the Battle of Gog and Magog. Ezekiel 38 and 39 are talking about a different Gog and Magog than Revelation chapter 20. Now, I'm going to leave that little tidbit with you, and then we'll come back to that probably next week. And I'll, I'll take some time to look at the Battle of Gog and Magog, both the Millennial Kingdom Gog and Magog and what I believe is the pre-tribulational Gog and Magog. But we're out of time now, so you can't get any more from me on that at this point. All right, let's have a word of prayer as we close today. Lord, thank you for your love, and thank you that you've given us this information about what's going to happen in the end times, Lord. We know that we won't be involved directly in, in much of this, if any of this, except to be witnesses of that final massacre when Christ will destroy his enemies. And we will be inhabitants and subjects of Christ as he takes over control of the earth and sets up his kingdom. And Lord, we can rejoice that we have our king on the throne then, but we know that he is on the throne now. And so help us not to lose heart. I pray that you would encourage us with your word, with your presence, and with your spirit, so that we might continue to persevere in truth and continue to fulfill that call that you've called us to. And so, Lord, thank you again for your word today. Just go with us now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm going to ask